Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger, and from Motley Fool Deep Value, Mr. Ron Gross. Good to see you, gentlemen. Hey, hey, hey. We have got the latest on energy, travel, restaurants, and more. We'll find out what makes entrepreneurs extraordinary with our guest, Amy Wilkinson. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the world's biggest retailer. Walmart's fourth quarter profits rose 12%, but that was overshadowed by the news that Walmart is raising its minimum wage for starting employees to $9 an hour. And Ron, higher wages, that's a good thing, also means higher costs. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the th- I think the best thing I could say about the quarter was, for Walmart, not too bad. Doesn't mean that was that it was great. Their, it was their best quarter in nearly two years. Right. And after you make some adjustments, net income was actually up 18%. You had improving customer traffic. Uh, lower gas certainly helps uh, Walmart. Holiday season was solid. Same store sales were up, which for Walmart is not necessarily a given. So it's really nice to see that. Um, but guidance for, for this year um, below expectations, partly because of what you just said. Um, they're going to $9 per hour, then to $10 per hour by February 2016. That'll add about a billion dollars worth of costs, not inconsequential. You know, Obviously, Walmart can, can handle that, but it does um, cause net income to come down a bit. But they're doing it for an important reason, not just because they're nice people, because I quite frankly don't know if they are. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing it to improve morale, to improve service. It's desperately needed in those stores. Um, and so we'll see if this bears fruit. I'm not convinced, because actually this will uh, bring them higher on an average uh, basis. $13 per hour on average will be their wage. Um, but the national average retailer is for $14.65, still below average. Um, so not sure it will get the job done. Yeah, but Jason, if it if it does reduce the amount of employee turnover, that's uh, definitely going to be a benefit. It's just not going to be a short term benefit. No, it's definitely not. I mean, I think if if you want to see the benefits from this, you definitely have to look at it from a from a longer term perspective. A couple things to note here: you know, if you look at Walmart over the past the, sh- the stock over the past five years, over the past ten years, it's done okay. Uh, it has trailed the market on both counts. And now, while they've done a good job over over the course of time maintaining their margins, and I think they've they've really been able to do that because of their scale, this is not something that will help that margin line at the end of the day. Uh, so, you know, if I'm looking at this from a shareholder's perspective, or even considering you know buying Walmart stock, uh, you know, I'm looking elsewhere because I just I, I don't see. While I applaud the decision to do this, I I don't see this as making any kind of a compelling argument from an, an investing uh, point of view. This, this should be happening, though. I mean, co- corporations in America are as profitable as they've ever been. And I know from an investor perspective, we want them to re- maintain that profitability. We want them to grow with profits. But eventually, you know, you kind of have to reward your employees. And, and, you know, if we go back in history in Ford back in the day, I mean, he wanted his customers to be able to buy his cars. And so, therefore, he gave, he, you know, he paid out pretty generous wages to Ford. And I just think Walmart's been way behind the curve on this. And I, I think a lot of companies are going to step in and actually start paying higher wages. And I, overall, for the economy, I actually think it's a net positive. And all the while, Jeff Bezos continues to build out his robot arsenal at Amazon. <laughs> True that. Those guys don't demand higher wages ever. No, but they do break down from time to time. Occasionally. And they can take over the world. I mean, just, just saying. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely coming. Let's move on to the travel industry. Last week, we talked about Expedia stock rising on the news that it's buying Orbitz. This week, shares of Priceline on the rise, thanks to good old-fashioned earnings 
Fourth quarter revenue up 19%. Jason, you looked at the quarter. What stood out to you? Uh, it's a phenomenal quarter, and I think that people who dismiss this as an investment idea are, are not seeing the forest for the trees. I think probably it's mostly due to misunderstanding the actual business, because we here uh, domestically are used to seeing William Shatner and Kaylee Cuoco you know, just slinging their products on the commercials all the time. But really, the the, the haymaker for this company is Booking.com. And I think we're seeing more advertising uh, for Booking.com. Uh, you know, you see those commercials all over now. If you haven't cut the cord yet, it's a uh, you know, right booking now. That's their that's their big slogan, and uh, that that makes the majority of this company's uh, money. Um, they have now six, more than six hundred thousand hotel providers in their network worldwide, more than two hundred countries. Uh, that's up over forty one percent versus last year. And you know, from from the hotel providers' perspective, from the hotel perspective, I mean, it's it's an attractive network uh, to be a part of because generally speaking. You know, hotel shoppers aren't loyal to the hotel. They just want a certain type of experience, whether it's a two, three, four star experience. Priceline offers them that marketplace, and every time they they you know buy off of Priceline, Priceline gets a little scrape there. So, just a phenomenal business, I think. Tremendous runway in a multi-trillion-dollar market opportunity. Ron, this is also a stock that is traded. You want to buy a single share of Priceline? It's over twelve hundred dollars. Do you think that kind of sticker <laughs> shock just scares away a, a decent number of investors? I think it does. It shouldn't theoretically, but if you if you only have five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to invest and you want to buy one stock, well, yes, it, it does really limit you um, to stay to the, to the more reasonably priced stocks. But as we say um, time and time again, it's not the number of shares you purchase; it's the amount of capital you're committing to an idea. So if you've got twelve hundred to 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 commit to an idea, it doesn't matter if you buy. 10 stocks, 10 shares, or one share, it's $1,200. Uh, last thing on Priceline, Jason, guidance for 2015 seemed a little cautious, soft, pick your adjective. Is that a concern? Not at all. I think you raise a good point there. I'm glad you mentioned it. But the biggest concern there is just regarding the currency headwinds. And they make 75% of their, of, their, of their money outside of the United States. And so, when we have a stronger dollar, that implies weaker other currencies. And, and Priceline is exposed to a lot of other currencies. Uh, but but when we look at it over over you know longer periods of time three five ten years we, we don't take currency uh, effects really that much in a, into account and and so I think when you look at something like Priceline they they can certainly weather that storm. Eventful week for Zillow. The online real estate site announced fourth quarter results and then a couple days later announced that its acquisition of rival site Trulia has closed. And Maddie, the stock up more than fifteen percent, and it seems like. That's due more to the Trulia acquisition being closed than the actual results. Absolutely. I mean, Zillow came out. It was it was last Friday, Friday the thirteenth, and, and almost like an excuse me press release at six thirty at night. <laughs> Zillow comes out with their results. Um, you know, way after the market closed, way after, after everyone's gone home for the weekend. Um, and in that release, you know, again, great quarterly results. But they said, hey, we've gotten FTC approval. The the Trulia deal is probably going to close early next week, and certainly it did on Tuesday. The deal closed. They did a, a press conference on Wednesday to announce the deal. Um, this is bring, this is combining two internet powerhouses in real estate together. I mean, together they're going to control about eighty percent of the traffic, online traffic for real estate. So it creates virtually um, a lockdown monopoly on the internet of real estate. Um, you, you've got a company with you know five hundred million in a, annual revenue run rate. Uh, they're supposed to bring out about hundred million in cost savings. There's a lot to like of uh, this, and you and you look at the. Spencer Raskov always throws this number out. The total spending on real estate advertising in the U.S. annually it's 13 billion, um, and even the combined Zillow and Trulia, which you know dominate the space, where 90% of people are going first to real estate, there's a small fraction of that that total spend. So, 
they think there's lots of upside. We think there's lots of upside. We just bought the stock for a million dollar portfolio. I'm sorry to sad to say that we bought it about 25 percent too late uh, from our watch list, but we still were excited about the opportunity. They also rebranded the company to the Zillow Group. They're keeping the Trulia brand separate. Do you like that move? I, I do like it because it also it also fits with their other brands, their Street Easy brands, and their hot their hot pad rental brands. So you know it's a, it's a group of brands now, and I think it all can work together that way. It could be kind of the Middleby of real estate, maybe. Uh. You think that's how they're referring to themselves? (laughs) Let's hope they have better marketing folks over at Zillow. That's a little bit of an insight. Nordstrom's fourth quarter revenue came in higher than expected, but profits were a bit light. On Friday, shares of the fashion retailer were up and hitting a new all-time high. Ron, we were talking about this before we started taping. They announced on Thursday evening, and the stock was down immediately in the wake of the results. What's going on here? Yeah, The, the aftermarket, which is after 4 o'clock when the market closes, is a tricky and often misleading market, where people trade um, too often, I think, based on knee-jerk reactions, um, where they read a headline and they think they understand what's going on. And in this case, they sold the stock off. When you delve in a little bit more and you wait for the conference call, you see that the company is actually doing quite well. They're spending, which is impacting net income, but they're spending for good reasons. They're spending to grow. They're spending on technology, store expansion, some acquisitions. They're doing the right things to grow the business. And the numbers actually reflect that. And except for the net income being lower because of these higher expenses, the sales numbers were good. Uh, the same store sales numbers were good. And unfortunately, you do see lower margins as a result of higher spending. But the company continues to execute well. I'm not saying they shouldn't be spending on technology. And certainly, we've seen retailers uh, that are effective in having the in-store experience and also the online experience. But Nordstrom has always struck me as one of those businesses that the in-store experience was a big differentiator. And I'm just wondering, how far can they go with online sales if that continues to be a differentiator for them? I agree with you. The, the service experience you get at Nordstrom in the stores is by far superior to, to what other things that are out there. But they're making a concerted effort to grow the online as well because, quite frankly, you have to in this environment. So, website was up 19%. They made an acquisition of Trunk Club, which is online men's business, um, and they're they're really trying to increase that spend, that you know, the, the sales that come from that that segment. Coming up, a tale of two restaurant stocks. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Fool Money, we're still here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argersinger, and Ron Gross. Solar City's fourth quarter revenue rose 52%, which sounds like a lot, Matty, but uh, they're spending a lot more than they're making, and losing $141 million in the quarter was more than even Wall Street was expecting. Keep, keep losing it. I mean, <laughs> I, I just think, you love this strategy. I, I do. I mean, this is a company that it's it's all going to be about spending for the, at least the next five to ten years. I mean, really. And you know, what I look at is look at the customers. I mean, they added a hundred thousand customers over the past year. One hundred ninety thousand customers uh, that they've served so far. They're responsible for thirty nine percent of solar panel installations in the, in the fourth quarter in the country. Uh, so, first mover, you know, big lead on the on the market. Their cost per watt keeps going down, which is a good sign. Uh, so. They've got their new solar loan program, which is really taking off. Uh, you know, this is really all about expanding capacity and, and just expanding their customer base. Um, and 
if they're doing that, I don't care how much they spend. Well, I care how much at some point, but I mean, if they can really build out this network and, and establish themselves, that's that's where they want to be. You love this strategy. Do you love the fact that shares of Solar City have fallen more than thirty percent over the past year? I do because I mean, I I'm a, I'm a net buyer. I'm a net buyer, and I think our services should be a net buyer of the, of the company as well. And I think you, as you, as gas prices come down, you see the stock price come down as well because theoretically, there's alternatives that are now. Um, competitively priced, I think that's short-term thinking, quite frankly. Gas prices won't be low forever, and and the alternative is, is certainly the wave of the future. And I, I'll, I'll just throw out this, too. I mean, I, I, one, one of the things that it's compelling is, is not really directly from Solar City, but Elon Musk in his conference call with Tesla Motors a, a little over a week ago talked about the idea of the near battery pack coming out. And I just think that the idea of efficient home energy storage is going to be another thing that can propel Solar City. Two restaurant stocks going in two very different directions. We'll start with Noodles and Company. Fourth quarter results much worse than Wall Street was expecting, and shares down nearly 30% on Friday. Ouch, Jason, how bad was this quarter? Well, uh, so one number for you here: 1.3%, and that really tells the tale there. That is the company's uh, comps number that they turned in this quarter, which is just brutal. I mean, like when you're when you're in a, in a market where where you have restaurant concepts like Chipotle, uh, you know, or are turning in Buffalo Wild Wings, are turning in these these high teen double digit comp numbers, and then Noodles and Company brings a little wimpy one point three percent. I mean, like I, I've never even spoken with. I've never been to Noodles and Company. Okay, so I, I'm a little bit ignorant as far as to to how good or bad the, the product is. But everyone I've spoken with, nobody has ever said, "Oh man, you've got to go there. It's just really good." So the best I've heard is it's okay. And I think that we're seeing that play out here in the market, really. And this is a situation where they went public, they did very well from an IPO perspective, they raised a bunch of money. But from an investing perspective, I look at this stock, and even if it's a screaming value today with a potential catalyst on the horizon, this is this isn't one I want to own for years to come, and so we actually had a department lunch a couple of months ago, and the the lunch was catered by Noodles and Company. I have to say the the food was pretty good, but it, not so good that I wanted to go out to I the think, restaurant itself. I think that's what it is, and and Jason said that it's pretty good actually, and we like it as a family. And whatever we're thinking about on the weekends, you know, where should we go? And someone says Noodle Company, we uh, no. <laughs> But but not because it's bad, just because it isn't great. If someone showed up at your door with some, you'd be right. Happy. And they do have Rice Krispie treats the size of your face. So <laughs> maybe, for those that like that, maybe that's the place where you you're gonna go to Chipotle. You get there, the line's too long. You're like, ah, maybe we'll go to Noodles and Company. And if that's the case, that's fine. But I don't want to be investing in a perpetual uh, second choice. Right. Yeah. At the other end of the spectrum, shares of Jack in the Box hitting a new all-time high on Friday after strong first quarter results. Uh, sales at the burger chain were good, Ron, but this is also the parent company of Qdoba Mexican Grill, and quarterly sales at Qdoba were great. Oh my goodness! Same store sales up fourteen percent at Qdoba. Who would have thought it? Um, not me. Uh, they're they're doing a great job. They've they've simplified their menu pricing. I, I think it was a little bit confusing to to people. Um, they've had seen positive traffic, less discounting at Qdoba, um, so everything is going really really well for them. Net income was uh, up twenty four percent for the quarter, um, and they continue to expand. Stocks up sixty seven percent over the last year. Which who would have thunk it? Again, not me. Um, 
they're just doing really, really well. What about the 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 main store, the Jack in the Box itself? I mean, is that menu st- have they simplified that menu at all? I think they they've pared it down a bit. Same store sales for them were up a bit more than four percent, wow. which is not not too bad. No, um, that's, that's, that's certainly great. healthy. Um, there's two thousand of those stores. There's only about six hundred Qdobas right now. It's still room for expansion. Um, both franchised as well as company owned. So the growth runway is there. And if they continue to put up positive same store sales like that, stock, I guess, could go higher. Interesting. When you think about how once upon a time McDonald's had Chipotle and spun it out, and obviously that didn't turn out too well for McDonald's, when you look at these results, and we've seen a few quarters in a row now of pretty good results from the Jack in the Box restaurants. But much higher comps at Qdoba, and now you're starting to hear rumblings of maybe they should spin this off. Is that something they should consider, or should they just hold on to Qdoba like grim death? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. I think you have to consider it. You have to run the numbers and see how it makes sense. You have to decide whether this is going to be a franchise model going forward or a company-owned model because that could impact the decision. But if they think that they can create value for shareholders by spinning it off, it's you know as a shareholder, which I'm not, you certainly would want them to to think about it. Well, you talked about how they simply Simplified the menu last year when they did that. Uh, some of our listeners uh, sent me emails and, and hit me up on Twitter with they had gone into Qdoba's and taken photographs of the menu, and it bears a striking resemblance <laughs> to the menu at Chipotle. Right. So, well, at the same time, Jack in the Box is re, you know retooling their menu and catering it to all the stoners out there. Like as as <laughs> marijuana becomes legal in more and more states, I'm not kidding. That's a growth like, you, industry. You look at this. It's like Taco Bell's fourth meal. Jack and Jack in the Box is basically doing the same thing. I mean, Mark Reese was talking about it. Uh, you know, a couple of months back, I think he actually tried some of this stuff. Maybe at one point, it, it looks After pretty smoking, disgusting. Some of the food. <laughs> some of the food. Right. The food. Uh, but but I, I think that you know it, it's a tale of two two real different cities here, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with Jack in the Box. But certainly, Qdoba is is interesting to say the least. Finally, guys, when we think of innovation, we tend to think about industries dealing with technology or medicine. When really, we should be thinking about pizza. This week, Little Caesars announced it will begin selling a bacon-wrapped crust pizza. Speaking of stoners. <laughs> selling for $12. And I'm quoting directly from the company statement here. This is an eight-corner deep-dish pizza wrapped in decadent whole strips of thick-cut crispy bacon and then topped with pepperoni and even more bacon. Ron, it's three and a half feet of bacon wrapped around this pizza. Don't tell me you're not interested. <laughs> 450 calories, 23 grams of fat, 830 milligrams of sodium. I'm Ooh. in. Wow. I got I got the corner pieces. What I, do eight corners mean, by the way? It's basically two rectangular pizzas. Oh, together. Uh, oh, it's okay. not an side by octagon side. of pizza? No. I mean, well, I just love that Sam Whiteside, who's our, our fitness trainer, health uh, consultant here at The Fool, and um, she has a Twitter account. She rarely tweets, but she tweeted the other day about this and saying, thanks a lot, Little Caesars, to contributing to the obesity epidemic in the country. So I love how it brought bacon, out the bacon. anger from Sam. Well, we've, we've got uh, one week until our monthly pizza day. Here at the Motley Fool, be interesting to see if one of these just just happens to show up. All right, Ryan Gross, Jason Moser, Matt Argus, and guys, we'll see you up later in the show. Next, what are the skills necessary to be an extraordinary entrepreneur? Amy Wilkinson shares some of what goes into the Creators Code. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. You must throw yourself off a cliff and assemble an airplane on the way down. 
That's how LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman describes the process of creating a business. Hoffman is just one of 200 business leaders that Amy Wilkinson interviewed for her new book, The Creator's Code, The Six Essential Skills of Extraordinary Entrepreneurs. And she joins me now from New York City. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on your show. All right, let's get to it. 200 business leaders. Which one was the most boring? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to make you go there. But um, let me let me start with just sort of the general topic because I'm I'm sure your publisher might have mentioned to you there are a lot of books about entrepreneurs. What makes successful business leaders successful? What am I getting in the Creators Code that I might not be getting in another book about entrepreneurship? Well, it's a good question, and actually, Dan Pink, who did one of the blurbs for the book, he, the blurb is, the shelves grown with these kinds of books. And the real difference of the Creator's Code is five years of research and 200 entrepreneurs that, inf- that inform a framework. So I think that's one of the big things that's cracking the code on what does it take to create and scale an idea. So the research and the data set behind it, I think, distinguish this book from a lot of other entrepreneurial books or business books that are one man's example or, you know, a list of three things that just seem to work in in one industry. This um, the Creator's Code goes across industries, it goes across geographies, and it basically brings this perspective to crack the code and unlock the six things that could make all of us a lot more successful. One of the things you found in your research is that creators set their sights on something bigger than the business at hand, and they they really want to make a bigger mark than just whatever their business is. You know, at Chipotle, you've got Steve Ells, who wants to change the way people eat fast food. Elon Musk, who founded Tesla Motors, is really interested in getting to Mars. And I'm curious, how how do they balance those type of long-term views with the interests of shareholders? Because as we all know, there are shareholders, particularly on Wall Street, who have much shorter time horizons. And sometimes you get investors or analysts on Wall Street saying, can you just stick to your knitting, please? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the creators, and the word creator is very specific, right? To try to say that you anyone can create and scale a company. I think that the creators I've interviewed, they definitely have a long-term vision in mind, and it stays very, very motivating. But they also focus on the details, right? So it's not an either-or. They are very attentive to short-term metrics, financial metrics, um, making sure they're driving their businesses every single day. But the long-term vision of trying to do something bigger than just uh, clock in and out nine to five on a job is what they're also doing. So it's a it's not either or. It's actually both. One of the things that pops up in your book is this idea of failure. That you know some of these business leaders, it's easy to look at them and think, "Gosh, they've had nothing but success." When in fact, the opposite is true. Before Starbucks, Howard Schultz creates an espresso bar that's not successful. Uh, Reed, Hoff, Reed Hoffman, before LinkedIn, he starts a dating website. Um, what were your observations and what did your research show about not just failing, but as you put it in the book, failing wisely? Right. So everyone interviewed in this book talked about failures, and that was surprising to me because they do look like such unbelievably successful founders. Um, 
the kind of takeaway here, there are a couple, but one of them is I, I truly believe that these people set failure ratios, meaning they want to get it wrong a certain percent of the time. And that's a new way of thinking about failing wisely. They don't want a perfect record. And in the past, business was about scaling um, and replicating ideas and striving for perfection. In the new economy, we don't really know. There's, you know, globalized technology and the speed of everything accelerating. So, in fact, you want to be wrong 20% of the time or 15% of the time or 30% because you're pushing the envelope to explore and innovate. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other is while you want to um, be testing ideas, you don't want to fail catastrophically. So this is the idea of small experiments. And um, that's another way of failing wisely. So uh, I can give an example. Opower, which is a great um, company, they went public last year. They are conserving energy. And in order to do that, the very founding of that company was based on experiments where they tried uh, an experiment saying, please turn off your air conditioner in the summer and use a fan. This was in California. And they put door knockers on the um, doorknobs of a, a number of homes. And the first one said, please be a good citizen. You know, turn off your air conditioning, conserve power. It didn't matter. That experiment didn't work. Then they did a door knocker that said, um, please turn off your air conditioning, turn on your fan, save the planet. That did not work. So they tried a third experiment that said, please turn off your air conditioning, turn on your fan. You'll save $55 on your monthly bill. That did not work. And then the fourth experiment worked, which was 77% of your neighbors are turning off their air conditioning and turning on their fan. And so that was the very genesis of that company saying, hey, let's experiment. And then that worked, and we'll keep doing that. And most recently, they've done a big experiment in Baltimore of trying to get people to turn off dishwashers and other things during peak demand hours. And they've saved enough energy to power the entire city of Miami for a year. So these little tiny experiments actually add up to something quite big. See, I hear stories like that, and I think, you know, that's the positive aspect of peer pressure. Nobody yeah, really, nobody right. ever talks about that. That's right. Um, let me uh, spot you up with not all 200, but just a few of the leaders that you interviewed, some of the people that you profile in the book, and just your top of mind uh, takeaway. Uh, let's go with Elon Musk, who I think most people identify, and probably rightly so, with Tesla Motors, but he's also mm-hmm. obviously heavily involved in Solar City and SpaceX. Mm-hmm. So, Elon Musk, I, I believe, is the Albert Einstein meets Steve Jobs, and I think he's the entrepreneur of our time. Um, he's trained as a physicist, that's why I'm thinking of the Albert Einstein angle, and that is a, a large part of how he sees opportunities. I was actually just with him three days ago in Los Angeles, talking about um, SpaceX and asking him more questions about Tesla. He's the CEO of both of those very dynamic companies and the chairman and co-founder of SolarCity, as you mentioned. But um, I think Elon, because he is trained as a physicist, he reasons by first principles. So he will say um, with any kind of business that he's trying to build, he really goes from the ground up. He will question every single assumption and he will build his own model. So SpaceX, for example, he's trying to build a reusable rocket. and he has taken over NASA's contracts to resupply the International Space Station. It's extraordinary 
and he's built a rocket currently that's one-tenth the cost of the previous NASA rocket. So because he reasons by first principles, builds these things from the ground up, he can do it a different way, and in this case, make it much cheaper, which will make space exploration much more possible. Um, so that's, that's a pretty exciting way to look at the world. Let's go with Under Armour founder Kevin Plank. Sure. So Kevin Plank um, is one of the most relatable entrepreneurs in the book where he was a walk-on fullback to the University of Maryland. He had been kicked out of Georgetown Prep in high school, bounced into a military academy, walked on five foot ten, two hundred and sixty pound fullback, slow, um, not a great athlete, but really wanted to play Division One football and uh, was weighed down by his cotton shirt, so he weighed his undershirt um, on the football field, and it weighed three pounds because the cotton was absorbing water. So he went to a local um, fabric store, explained his somewhat comical problem, and then got this microfiber, you know, synthetic fabric, took it to a tailor, and with $450 and seven prototypes, he came up with what today many, many of us know as the Under Armour performance gear, and that business has continued to expand. I mean, he also is quite funny in that he, at one point, uh, did a shrink it and pink it campaign for women. He just thought that he could take the existing products for football players and make them smaller and make them pink. Uh, and that didn't work. They lost a lot of money on inventory, and he had to hire in a whole women's team. And now that is the fastest-growing part of his business, is uh, women's gear. You know, the uh, the story you just shared about him sort of methodically going about figuring out how to design and, and create a new shirt is maybe not at odds, but certainly is uh, a different side to the coin than a story uh, than another story you share about Plank in your book, which is uh, where he is basically trying to get in the face of Nike and right. go- going so far as to sending Phil Knight, uh, the co-founder at Nike, sending him a Christmas card every year. This is well before Under Armour was a- anything that anyone would consider a success. Um, and you know, sending a Christmas card saying, "You haven't heard about us yet, but you will." Um, That's right. Which leads me to this question: You have these six essential skills for entrepreneurs, but I have to believe that you've got this very wide range of personality types among these leaders. Um, Kevin Plank showing tremendous chutzpah in doing something like that. To what extent is charisma or that sort of force of will an important ingredient for successful business leaders? Uh, I don't know if charisma per se is what drives these individuals. I think it's a real belief in something that they're doing. So Kevin really believes in powering athletes. Um, He is a football player. When you talk to him, he looks like, sounds like, and acts like a football player. Under Armour has huddles instead of, you know, staff meetings. And they have team members, you know, instead of employees. I think that he's really driven by a competitive spirit of an athlete, and he wants to make other athletes better by, you know, the gear that they um, would use in whatever sport that they're playing in. And across different categories, the Revolution Foods 
founders, for example, and they're in the East Bay of California, they are moms who wanted better food quality for their children in the public school system. And so they have very um, dynamically gone about believing they could make that better. And they have over $100 million in revenue in a business that improves the nutrition for um, kids, basically, and what they eat. I don't know if it's a personality trait per se. I think it's a belief in what you're doing and then a real drive to make that happen. Coming up, more with Amy Wilkinson. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here talking with Amy Wilkinson, author of the new book, The Creator's Code, The Six Essential Skills of Extraordinary Entrepreneurs. A lot of data in your book, um, obviously a lot of research driving the book. Did anything surprise you while you were working on this? Well, I'll tell you one of the big surprises to me is that all of these entrepreneurs, the creators and the Creator's Code, they feel uncomfortable which that was a surprise to me. Uh, you look at them and you think, these people have, quote-unquote, made it, right? They are at the apex of their industries. And yet, when you really ask some, you know, deeper questions, what comes up is the work is never done. It is an uncomfortable feeling to think you want to create and you want to build, and people just get comfortable, with being uncomfortable. There's no striving for a corner office where you actually feel secure because that's not going to be um, something that anybody really achieves, I don't think, in the new economy. It's the curiosity and the willingness to try and the willingness to think that it won't be easy, but it will be worth it to create and build something new. One of the things you point out is that entrepreneurship is you know, not necessarily just for the people who are looking to start a business. It's something that people can do in whatever their current job is. Uh, what's one thing that we could all do to sort of summon our inner entrepreneur? Well, that's a really great point because uh, being a creator, and this word was chosen very deliberately, we can all create new initiatives inside of a big company or a nonprofit. People can create activities that are not necessarily business activities, but still they are creating and scaling ideas. And I, you know, all of these six skills are very accessible, but I like find the gap. It's the first skill, and it basically is a way of seeing the world where we can all go and spot an opportunity. Uh, and there are three ways that I the, discovered the research is informing. One I'm calling a sunbird. It's the Australian word for hummingbird. And uh, Howard Schultz of Starbucks is a great example that you mentioned. He saw coffee culture in Italy, and then he basically picked it up and um, lifted and shifted it, flew it over to the United States as a sunbird would, and applied it in Seattle and then on from there. A second way of finding a gap or seeing an opportunity would be as an architect. And um, Sarah Blakely of Spanx is a great example. She cut the feet out of her nylons and came up with a whole new undergarment, made her the youngest self-made female billionaire. That didn't exist before. She saw an open space, and then she 
build something new. Or the third way that you could see an opportunity would be as an integrator and going to an intersection or integrating ideas as Chipotle founder Steve Ells did. He's a classically trained chef who um, loved burritos. He was working in a very fancy restaurant called Stars in San Francisco, but hanging out in the Mission District where he was eating burritos. And he basically put two and two together and said, I can make a new category, which is now called fast casual in the restaurant industry. So he integrated cooking for the line, as he talks about it, but cooking right in front of you, but in a very fast format. So all of us could look at the world as a sunbird um, and lift and shift ideas or look at the world as an architect, try to build something new in an open space, or look at the world and see where we could remix ingredients and where we could, um, you know, look at an intersection of ideas. So I think that one, for absolutely everyone, regardless of where you are, is very, very applicable. The book is The Creator's Code, The Six Essential Skills of Extraordinary Entrepreneurs. It is already an Amazon bestseller, so check it out. Amy Wilkinson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Guys, it is that time once again, time for the stocks on our radar. Our man Steve Broido is not behind the glass. He He's sick this week, so this will be just oh, like, stress-free. Stress-free on that. This is <laughs> dedicated for Steve Broido. What do you got this week, Ron? I've got a microcap deep value for you. Whoa! Amco Pittsburgh, AP, $193 million company. They make forged and cast steel rolls, so big rolling pins that make sheets of steel. Uh, they report next Friday. They hold a conference call. The first time they've ever held a conference call, or, or at least the first time in my 15-year experience with this company, Gabelli owns 20% of the stock. That might be why they're starting to get shareholder friendly. Stocks at 1850, I think it's worth $25. You get 3.9% dividend yield while you wait for the cyclical play to turn out right. Jason, what do you got? This is from my guys Drab T-shirt and Ewad over at 1067 local radio station here. They have been on me about GoPro and GoPro is now finally on my radar. The lockup is over. I think that there's a lot of pessimism here. The stock has just gotten hammered here recently. But GoPro is the name you know in this market. I mean, I don't I don't think Apple, I don't think Google, I don't really think anybody is going to be able to get in there and displace this this uh, this market anytime soon. And I like their transition into a media content provider. So GPRO GoPro is on my radar. Matt Argusinger? Going with one everyone knows well. Tesla, Tesla Motors, TSLA. Now, I know it looks crazy expensive. It just looks, but I have to say, um, going through the conference call, excited about the new battery pack, stationary storage power. Uh, you know, if you if you really look at this company, it's twenty six billion. It's a huge company already, but I I think this is a much much bigger company with all the things they got going for them. So if you if you haven't ever looked at Tesla before, take a look at my a very small position. Worried about Apple? Yes or no? No, not at all. The fact that Apple's working potentially working on a, a car of its own? No, not at all. It's, uh, it's, it, building a car is a very hard thing. I, I, Apple's great. It's, it's going to be a very hard road for them to travel. Any chance Apple buys Tesla Motors? Yes. <laughs> yes. That is going to do it for this week. Jason Moser, Ron Gross, Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.